Billy Crystal uh, texted me and said he wore my shirt to bed the other night, and his wife was like, honey, you're glowing. And he, I, I forgot my shirt glow in the dark. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember Is it that. literally glow in the dark? Yeah. Yeah, it is. The moon, right? Yeah, it's the moon. I I yeah. yeah. I, it works quite well as well. That sounds like the setup to a Rodney Dangerfield joke. Honey, you're glowing. I re- oh. I remember holding <laughs> when our first baby was born, holding him and realized trying to get him to go to sleep in the dark, <laughs> and the shirt was glowing so much. He's uh, like I forgot. I, I forgot. I was like, that was like an early thing. I'm like, oh, please make him glow in the dark. Yeah, yeah. it glowed and, almost too well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He said his wife said he looked like ET. <laughs> Five men with identical, non-transferable, narrow skills and a ton of free time on their hands now unite. Their primary mission? To funnel money to their staffs. Their secondary mission? Attention. Will their efforts be worth more than the sum of their parts, or will they turn on each other? Which, let's be honest, would probably make for a better podcast. This is Strike Force 5. We were talking last episode about first episodes of talk shows, and I would posit you cannot learn how to do these shows any other way than doing these shows and the best laid plans for what you think are going to go into hosting a talk show go out the window pretty quickly yeah oh yes i will i will uh endorse that idea before we i get into it should we say why we're doing this podcast on you guys this is strike force five this is five talk show hosts who are getting together to chat about our lives but most importantly to make some money that we can use to pay our staffs, all of whom are not working uh, due to this ongoing writer's strike. Uh, yeah. with not just the writers, right? I mean, it's it's interesting because people think just the writers are on strike, but yeah. the whole staff. How many, how many staff members do you guys have? I have 210. I have 181 regular staff members, 17 writers, and then a lot of crew. I have 305 or something. John does it alone. No, I have uh, 500 people. John, no, you don't really. You have no, 500 no, people? No, no. no, John, who do you miss most? <laughs> I mean, I will say during during these, I, I miss researchers and legal advisors just because well, we'll see. Maybe this will be more exciting. It's it's nice to get to say what you think is true, not what you are told is legally defensible. So, How many times yeah. have you been sued since you've lost your uh, legal support staff? I wouldn't. I guess they'll tell me when they say when when we catch up finally in person. Who do we have to thank for uh, uh, putting this podcast uh, on? Diageo. Yes, absolutely. Diageo is not just one company, is it, Kimmel? Diageo is the parent company for a variety of top shelf products, uh, including Casamigos, including Love Casamigos, Aviation Gin, including Bullet which is a bourbon, a whiskey, a kettle one, vodka. Aviation gin. Aviation, that? right? Yeah, that's, uh, that's Ryan Reynolds again. And Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds created Aviation Gin. And he owns Mint Mobile, which is our other presenting sponsor. So Casamigos, Mint Mobile are paying our staff today, and I think that's pretty great. Thank you. you guys Reynolds. be okay if I had a little Casamigos? I've got a, I've got a bottle right here. I thought I it's might. 7.30 in the morning. Why not? Don't drink the whole thing. Enjoy responsibly, Stephen. That's like a 24-ounce 7-Eleven cup, Stephen. (laughs) That's a big goal. It's a slurpee. Did you hear that there's a new Casamigos tequila? What? (laughs) Tell us more, Stephen Colbert. Wait, they have have Reposado, right? And now they have Cristalino. Casamigos Cristalino. Yeah, it's crisp. It's clean. It's silky smooth. From beginning to end, but they—that's uh, why it's called a silky smooth finish. It's made from the award-winning Casamigos Reposado that they're saying has the character of the Reposado with the clear, crisp, bright notes of the Blanco. Everybody's happy. Cristalina. Yeah. So much tastier than the pond water served by. As well, there was a incident a few years ago between John and a representative for the bottling distillery. George, Randy, and Mike like to say it, our tequila is your tequila. Our casa is your casa, brought to you by those who drink it. As always, enjoy responsibly. Imported by Casamigos Spirits Company, White Plains, New York.
40% alcohol by volume. And thank you, Casamigos, for giving us money to give our staff. So delicious. Have you guys ever done a liquor ad? Like, have you ever done a, a, an ad for a liquor company or oh, a yes. beer company or anything? Casamigos, yes. I mean, done... like, like, a, like a campaign, like you were part of the campaign? I did a, um, a Budweiser campaign with Daisy Fuentes when I was uh, just a young lad. Ooh. Daisy Fuentes. Yeah. 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 I love her. I love her. Yeah. As a result of doing those commercials, I don't know if you guys experienced that. Every time I watched, and I remember how it was like, it was like 14 hours of me walking to a bar and delivering two lines. And you had to hold the bottle in just the right, right way. It had to be glistening in, in the light. They spray, it, they spray it with water like a, to make yeah. it look like ice cold. Glycerin. Every it. time I watch a commercial now, all I can think of is how long it took and how much suffering must have gone on <laughs> during that excruciating shoot. And it really, like, it, I have that in my head every single time I, I watch a commercial on television, which isn't often. I, I turned down a Budweiser campaign to be the voice, which is like the dream. Because if you're for a voice, you don't have to do anything. You just go in there. You have to do the please drink responsibly, but it's just right. some copy. They it's kind of like this me. podcast. They came to me. Why did you turn it down, Steve? Thanks for asking, Seth. I turned it down because the product was Budweiser Energy. <laughs> it was a caffeinated beer. That's illegal. Called B, which, and they wanted to call it B to the E. Oh, no. <laughs> and I was a correspondent at The Daily Show. This is fairly early on, like 2002 or 2001. And I guess they were competing with Red Bull and rum or whatever. Like, they want, we need that. We need that energy drink thing. Oh. They're killing us. And so the ad copy was things like, you know, your friends are heading home and you're just getting started. B to the E. You know, <laughs> someone's got to get up in the morning, not you, because you're not going to bed. B to the E. B and then it would be, e. it was unbelievable copy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You're going to chew the inside of your mouth off. B to the E. <laughs> and then at the, at the bottom, it said, please drink responsibly. And I'm like, do I read that line too? <laughs> and, and so, the only way to read that line would be this, like, you know, your friends are all going home, but you're just getting started. B to the E. Please drink responsibly. <laughs> your eyes are really. <laughs> Please drink. Okay. Oh, yeah. So I you said no, because I could not, I could not in good conscience promote B to the E. <laughs> I'm just, I was just Googling whether it, there's literally the first order that comes up is B to the E, remembering Budweiser's failed energy beer. <laughs> Maybe that could it would have been have me if Stephen had supported it. It's yeah. the magic yeah. hour of, of beers. Early 2000 partnership with Bud Light and Axe Body Spray. That was... <laughs> That's quite a combo. <laughs> yeah. And one nine hundred collect. You can... <laughs> it, was a, it was a huffable beer. <laughs> Do you remember those one nine hundred collect commercials that were everywhere for about eighteen months, and it was just it was relentless. It was all over football, and it, the idea was you would call one nine hundred collect to place a collect call to someone that you know. It was real, and they had a lot of money. No, yeah, I, I used it. I was in uh, I was in L.A. and I used it all the time to call. My, my my parents and I remember doing a Saturday night gig at the Improv, which is a big deal if you do stand up. If you do a Saturday night gig, because Monday through uh, Thursday, I want to say you get paid seven dollars a gig, maybe at the Improv, seven dollars and thirty cents or something. I I have one of my pay stubs. They just do it so it's legally you can say you're paying these comedians, and you do ten minutes and it's a big deal. You hope for your big break, and if you get Saturday night, you get they they feed you, and it's just a big deal because I have no food and. Uh, it's just awesome. So I loved it. And Bud Friedman put me up and this is the first Saturday night and I'm all nervous. And I go there and who walks in but Jerry Seinfeld to the improv. And I go, oh my God, this is peak Seinfeld. The, the, and I go, I had to call. I, so I went to a payphone call, 100 Collect. I called my mom and I go, Jerry Seinfeld just walked in the improv. She's like, oh my God, Jerry Seinfeld. Oh my God, is he going to do standing? You know, I love it. And I go, she's like, she thought like that was me making it in the business, you know, that I was in the club that Jerry was in. I said, I don't think he's doing stand-up, but I think he's just coming. He's eating dinner with you know with Bud Friedman or something. And so, anyways, I go in. I'm waiting to go on. So I'm nervous. It's my first Saturday night. And Jerry walks in. Just They go, we had a surprise for everybody tonight. Uh, you might know. Blah, blah. Jerry Seinfeld gets a standing ovation going on stage. 
crushes, does 10 minutes of great stand-up, and then standing ovation, leaving. It just, every bit worked. It was unbelievable. And then they go, all right, who's up next? Uh, uh, Dave? And this guy goes, I'm not following Jerry Seinfeld. No way. And they go, all right, how about uh, this other guy? And then he's like, I'm not following Jerry. No, no, no. And he goes, who's Jimmy Fallon? I go, that's that's me. He goes, well, you're up. You're up next, kid. And so my first Saturday night, I had to follow Jerry Seinfeld. And uh, I, of course, did impressions at the time. That was my act. Yeah. I, I, so I started my act with, the, I just changed the order and did Jerry, like, going, like, you know, well, yeah, exactly, like a what's the deal or something like that. And I'm like, and uh, it worked. And so I actually, I was happy. I actually followed Jerry Seinfeld. And it, it was like, I was sweating bullets, but I was like, oh, it was a legendary night for me. Like, Was this Bud Energy Friedman or the regular Bud Friedman? We just call him B to the F. We didn't know his middle name. <laughs> to the. To the. Oh, it was to the. Yeah, we did yeah. know his middle name. It was B to the Friedman. But everyone said oh. to the. Whatever. Even I'm when you were doing uh, Second City, sometimes uh, celebrities would drop in, right? To like do yeah. the set. Yeah. Who yeah. was the most famous person that uh, dropped in when you were there? I wasn't on set, but Robin Williams. I wasn't on stage, but Robin stopped in one night. That was pretty. That was pretty great. Somebody asked for a, a a menu, and of course there are no props. It's all just object work. It's and baseball, yeah. And he reached over and picked up one of the Bentwood chairs and handed it, handed <laughs> it to the person as the menu, uh, and it couldn't it, have been it couldn't have been more wonderful. And of course they just <laughs> they just kind of rolled with it and just looked at like the cane work on the bottom of the Bentwood chair, going, "Oh, this is very nice." Um, a uh, uh, Belushi, not 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 John Jim Belushi, he came in a few times. I mean, there are many other people. Belushi sticks out because he liked to slap people on stage. <laughs> or what? What? he would like he would he would slap someone on stage to get like a shock reaction from the audience. Ooh. And oh. he has this big old big old meat hooks <laughs> of these hands. And what? so he would pick someone who thought like that guy's not gonna hit me back. And then he would just jack them and like that. And the audience would go like, oh, like it was a huge energy bump. And I totally get it. Like I thousand percent get it, but <laughs> one but it was, you know, no one wanted to be that guy. Yeah, and and um, one night it went, in my opinion, a little too far. And obviously, Mr. Belushi was not aware that it had gone too far. It was all in good fun. And I we we're doing a uh, you know freeze tag, you know switch at the end of the set. And I said uh, freeze, and I went and he had just tagged on something. He just like teed off on this guy's face, and I I went in. I said freeze. I I walked. I went in and I didn't take anyone's position. I just said hit him back. I said to the I said to the guy, hit him back. This is never going to stop unless you hit him back. <laughs> like a dad talking okay. to a, like a kid who's being bullied. And the audience is like, oh, like that. And, you know, the guy's like, ah, I don't want to like that. So I, so I turned to Belushi and I said, like this. And I gave him a, the swiftest crack I could give him from a short distance. Like that. And Katie bar the door, up for grabs. Chaos in the house. Melee, melee. The, the, Melee, he comes at me. They're like pulling me back, him apart. Lights come down, and we're backstage yelling at each other. It was fantastic. It oh, was he was upset. Oh, wow. He, he was a little upset that I... Uh, and you, I, based on yeah. Chicago law, you were in jail for five years for slapping a Belushi. <laughs> a Belushi, you can, yeah. <laughs> Slap a Belushi. You, know, you can hit an Ackroyd, you can't hit a Belushi. Once in the early years of the show, Mr. T was my co-host, and Jim Belushi was the guest, and they did not hit it off despite the fact that they are both from Chicago. And Mr. T was doing his tough guy thing. And Belushi wasn't, you know, you just go along with Mr. D's Mr. T, you know. And Belushi was not going along with it. And he's like, I don't remember exactly what he said, but what resulted was the two of them facing each other and um, kind of grappling a little bit, and they were about to fight. And it became apparent to me right away that Jim was going to be able to overpower Mr. T. And that that would be the end of Mr. T it, it, for, I mean, really like. Because Mr. You know, T's not that tall, right? He's not that tall and he's a good deal older, I think. Than I thought the T stood for tall. <laughs> the T, no, no, the T stands Mr. for. Tall? No, not Mr. Tall. And um, and they were about to fight. I know B to the T is a tall, a guy named Bud who's tall. <laughs> no, 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 that's, uh, you're confusing the story, Seth. This is totally wrong. But they almost fought on the show. And I had to like calm them down a little bit to get who was at fault. 
Who would you, if you were a cop who came on the situation and had to arrest one of them? Jim Belushi. I, Belushi I, wasn't, I wasn't there and I already know. 100% Belushi. And is that your best day as a cop if you get called to the scene and it's Jim Belushi and Mr. T? Is that literally like why you became a cop? <laughs> it's a story you tell your kids. Actually, actually did call the cops and you know who showed up? Eric Estrada on a motorcycle. It was incredible. <laughs> No, late night's changing, but I do think one thing it should go back to is just unrestrained, unplanned physical violence between guests. We used to have multiple said for that. Sal, Seth, you're talking about like first episodes and the beginnings of the show. My cousin Sal used to pillow fight the guests, and he did this probably. In fact, he had a pillow fight with Jim Belushi, and no, he had a pillow fight with Tom Arnold, and somehow it's a fine line. Tom Arnold's suede jacket, and Tom Arnold was very upset about his jacket being ruined. But Sal would pillow fight. Anybody who seemed kind of big, he would have a pillow fight with them. And, I mean, there's one night where Anna Nicole Smith, Don King, and Lennox Lewis, the (laughs) fighter, were on, and he decided to, to attack Lennox Lewis with a pillow, and they started fighting, and there was a birthday cake. It went all over Anna Nicole Smith. She slipped in the cake. She fell to the ground. Lennox Lewis's mother somehow got hurt in the melee. Wow. <laughs> is this are you also because i do want to ask about this are you live at the point because you live. do a live talk show. wow so this is happening you cannot live. edit around no the show was i mean listen i got i know we all had a hard time launching our shows we all you know there are struggles but there's no show that was worse at least on this um podcast than mine for the first like eight to 11 years i mean it was <laughs> absolutely a ridiculous show the first week of the show we had the rock on who at the time was mostly known as a wrestler but he's about to start his movie career and it was blizzard night on abc they had blizzards happening all through prime time so every show featured a blizzard and we decided we're gonna have blizzards on a blizzard on our show we got this snow machine and I began choking on snow on the snowflakes coming out of the machine. Like I could not stop choking. The show was live. And then the rock was uh, the producers wanted him to come out on a, a sled with a sled dog, you know, on like a sled and he didn't want to do it. And they had a big fight that resulted in the rock not being on our show for quite a long time. <laughs> and it was just, just crazy. Just stupid. The Rock wanted the sled dog or the producer wanted the sled dog? Rock didn't want to get out on the sled um, with the sled dogs. And we had already booked the sled and the dog. So, of course, we had to do it. And $800. Sled dogs, $800, I guarantee you. At least. I got a reverse, I got a reverse of that. We had Mariah Carey on my show one time right around Christmas. Good time to have her. Last uh-huh. minute, she decides she wants me to interview her in a sleigh, in a practical sleigh. Now, I will just tell you guys this. The hardest time to rent a sleigh in New York City <laughs> right around Christmas last minute. And by practical sleigh, do you mean it literally had to get to 30 Rock on snow? Yeah, yeah it had to be pulled by. She didn't want to find out that it came up an elevator. It was no. a, an episode of Andy Cohen's show. when that, that was live. That Mariah Carey was on it. It had the most electric opening that he was in the guest chair. And she wasn't there. And he oh, it basically bumped straight into him and he said, Mariah Carey's in the building, but she's not coming out yet. She won't sit on the side that guests normally sit. And he was just waiting. Plausibly, he was going to have to fill 30 straight minutes. I don't know how long he eventually did, but it was truly exciting watching a guy flounder because you know what it's like to be in his position. that He's on Mariah Carey time, and Mariah Carey time might not be within the next 30 minutes. We, I, will, I will say that is the latest we started. Yeah, now, again, us too. Yeah. Who are other guests who have held up the the show? Now I always was jealous of like how Letterman's like the show started exactly at the time it was going to start, and it didn't matter if you weren't there, you just better be there. And you know, of course, as the years go on, you have less clout, and you're not David Letterman, and you're not going to go drag Mariah Carey out of her dressing room. But have you guys had that where a show has started late or ended? I had Kanye did nine takes of his song to the point where we're like, hey, yeah. we need to finish because we're about to go on the air. He did the song nine times in a row. Don Henley four times, but he listened to it down in the control room between each one, I think. Like it was, that's, it a, was long, uh, that's a long gap for the audience. It was a good, it was very good though. It was very good. I actually had to go on as a guest when somebody didn't show up at the Daily Show once. Al Sharpton didn't <laughs> show up. That to the daily show one night and i had tickets 
to see a preview screening in New York at like the MGM screening room of the Lord of the Rings, of the Fellowship <laughs> of the Ring. It hadn't come out yet. It was like two months ahead of time. And uh, I had tickets to go and I wasn't on the show that night. I waited till rehearsal, rehearsals. Okay, I'm not on the show tonight. I go to put my hand on the door to leave the studio and I hear, Stephen Colbert, please come to the studio. Fuck. And I went down and they said, Al Sharp didn't show up. And I said, uh-huh, you're Al Sharpton. I said, not an impression, right? And they said, yes, just you're Al Sharpton. I said, got it. And I went to the wings and John's already done the first two acts. And he goes, you're Al Sharpton, you're Al Sharpton from the desk. And I went, got it, I'm Al Sharpton. And I just walked on and I was just me like this. Did but he interview as every- Al Sharpton? What? Did he interview you as Al Sharpton? Yes, yeah, all the questions were questions for Al Sharpton, but I just answered all the questions. And it was, it was, <laughs> It was really early on. I didn't know John that well because I was doing Exit 50. I was doing Strangers with Candy for, for the first couple of years uh, of John of John's show. I love And Amy so Spare. we didn't know each other yet. And that's the night we went, oh, we could have a lot of fun together because this was more fun than anything we've ever written together. I remember every time I went on Colbert Report with you, we had so much fun. It got bizarre. There was one where we like, we 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 took we ate Ben and Jerry ice cream and we and we started we tripping. tripped. We had I, we had brain freeze, and the brain freeze made us hallucinate. And we went to an ice cream world where we <laughs> get attacked bizarre. by ice cream cones. And we brought in Ben and Jerry on a cloud. Yeah. And in rehearsal, we said, "Here are your AK forty sevens. Murder the ice cream cones to save me and Jimmy." And yeah. their people said, uh, uh, "Ben and Jerry's won't, uh, won't they, Ben and Jerry will not fire guns." We went, "Oh, didn't oh. we also like?" Do, I think uh, he defeated them with love or something. We fall down a well. Yes, uh, and at the end of it, in re- in rehearsal, or maybe even in the show, you said at the end of it, I love you. And I said, you seem nice. <laughs> yeah, I was waiting and for you to say I love you, and, Beth. And you said, best friends forever. And I said, it's a long time. It's a long time. And you said, six months. And so we became best friends forever six, for six months. Six months. And that led to one of the favorite things I've ever done with anyone, which is pimping you for $28,000. But that's another story. That's another no. broadcast. That's another podcast. We don't have time for that. That May really did happen. That really did happen. share an embarrassing story as it relates to Ben and Jerry and your ice creams? Sure. So, you know, Jimmy has an ice cream with Ben and Jerry's, and Stephen has an ice cream with Ben and Jerry's. And Stephen and I have the same manager, James Baby Doll Dixon. Baby Doll thought it would make sense, as we are all 1130 television hosts, if I had an ice cream with Ben and Jerry's as well. And so he called Ben and Jerry's and said, hey, do you guys want to do an ice cream with Jimmy Kimmel, too? And they said, not interested. <laughs> Seth, what year did you launch? 14. Late night? 14. I, I, launched, I launched a week after uh, uh, Jimmy started The Tonight Show, February. Okay. So I was at the end of my run because I ended the Colbert Report on December 18th, 2014. And I don't know why I was over at 30 Rock because I don't work there. Maybe no, if, you ended, if you ended December 14, I started February 14. So you were there. I think you came over because that's you 10 did months my, after. did my first show. Uh, yeah, but I, I did. I did. Um, for whatever reason, I was over there where your set was being built, Seth. Okay, gotcha. And I just wanted to see it. I just wanted to see what we were building. It was so beautiful. That first set was so beautiful. All that blonde wood. It was you were just you're broadcasting from an IKEA. It was beautiful. It was all Scandia design. And I know, but how long did you have that set? And why did it go away? He assembled it himself with an Allen key. All right, guys. Okay, you proved yourself to be British because no one says Allen key in the United States. Really? It's an Allen wrench. It's an Allen wrench. It's not a wrench. It's an Allen wrench. Allen key was a very famous British comedian. Oh, okay. That's that must be sure. Fusion. He had a show on MSNBC. Allen key is Francis Scott Wrench wrote "God Save the Queen." Right. That's correct. She's not a human being. (laughs) Wrench and Peel, of course, the comedy duo. I bought Seth's. Um, I have Seth's original set. I bought it for one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars at auction, and uh, I got a warehouse. And sometimes I go, I sit on it. Stephen uh, Stephen buys old T-shirts and hats. You like the old sets. The sets. Why did you change the set, Seth? It was a beautiful. You thought it was a beautiful set, right? It's a beautiful set. I didn't. I have no visual taste or style. Fallon, you'll love this. Three months into my show, Lauren has dinner with Alec Baldwin. Alex says, "I really like Seth's show." Why does this set look like a sushi restaurant in Burbank? And from that day on. Wow. That's a surgical strike. Then you went gritty. You got gritty. It wasn't just the background that you had chairs. 
couches are kind of assumed. You had like four-legged chairs, spindly chairs, and your desk didn't go to the ground. I remember being able to see your feet your and thinking, that's a choice. It, it, was like a, it was like a pioneer one, like a one-room schoolhouse desk. Yeah. A it's like where a pioneer student learned to... I kind of remember. Did you come out of stained glass? Do you have a stained glass wall? That was Conan. I came out on a my uh, my. There was an arm that rotated out that had my desk and chair on it. So I would do the monologue. That's right. That's right. And then when the monologue ended, an arm with the the sitting part of the show would spin out, and I'd have to yeah. jump on. There was something about the fact it was a four legged chair. It felt like you were being interviewed to be a prospective guest on your show. That was a strange <laughs> thing. It was bad. Billy Eichner said it was uh, he because Billy Eichner's a, a very a tall gentleman, and he said he's never looked stupider on TV than when he sat in one of our tiny chairs. The chairs, a lot of thought goes into the chairs that the audience at home, you know, doesn't right. they don't care why should they care? But like how a woman sits in a chair as opposed to a man sits in a chair, and like you have to have the chairs angled in a certain way, like if someone's wearing a skirt, like there's. Hmm. There's, yeah. there's, or like, are you upstaging the guest on the angle we, of their we chair? Had a and fake how far... chair? We had a fake chair backstage so that uh, guests can sit in it and feel what it would feel like and what it looks like. So really? Yeah, what? because some people wear outfits that are beautiful and standing up, but then sitting down, it's a disaster. Like, especially if it's a skirt or, you know, something like yeah. that. And you go, so you understand this is what it's going to look like when you sit down. Don't you love finding out a little something, a little trick that somebody else has, has figured out as far as doing this this dumb job that we all have with all the same elements? And you're like, oh, well, that's why. Why didn't we think of that before? And I how really much... do think collectively we all, at least those of us with guests, John. I had a guest book. area. I had a guest area. It was the most expensive part of our set. We never used it. <laughs> you had a guest booker. Talk about a cushy gig. <laughs> yeah, guest wow. booker. Guest area, be beautiful guest area, and we never, ever used it. We have extra chairs backstage that are larger than the standard chairs. And if we have a larger guest, we switch them out and put in – they're to scale with each other, so you can't tell. But just to make people comfortable, we, we have uh, chairs. Like if Shaq's on, the bigger chairs are out there. Our backstage chairs, we say this is exactly the chair that's out there, but it's a little bit smaller. So that when they sit in it, they think they're going crazy. <laughs> or they've I, lost weight. They're so nervous. They've actually sweat. Alpha away moves, what I like to do. I like to make the guest right away feel a little. We, yeah. You actually, yeah. Your chairs get smaller and smaller just to keep celebrities in line and say, hey, just take care of yourself. Well, every time a guest comes back, we make it a little bit smaller. Hey, um, uh, Kimmel, I want to ask, because you, you did not, despite how crazy it was to host a live show. You did not decide to stop doing it live. No, the network decided that we needed to stop doing it live because an actor named Thomas Jane said the word fuck like 19 times in a row and the censors couldn't keep up with it delay-wise and a bunch of the affiliates were upset, even though after 10 p.m., technically you can say or do anything you want. Then uh, they said, that's it. You're, you're, and they'd been moving in that direction for quite some time at that point but that's what that's what did it that was the end of being live Were you bummed? yeah i was bummed i was very bummed we fought it and then we decided I, but why why i've always wanted to ask you why did you want to do your show live what what why i don't know i made a lot of ridiculous decisions one of the big reasons was i would do the show i love live we felt i like live too but it's it's a late night live on the east coast not, is not west coast though right on the West Coast, we felt like the fact that we knew who'd win the big games and we'd have yeah. news late into the evening, we'd, we'd know what was going on when the show went on the air. It just felt like the only advantage because, you know, the ABC had no talk show. There, were, there was nothing there. We were making something out of nothing and trying to get some kind of attention and you know when you start a talk show you think about all these ways your show is going to be different from the other talk shows from that you know set steve allen model and the reality is as you go along it becomes more and more like that because the, that's what works and that's yeah. what makes sense when yeah. we started people forget about the early 2000s if you were a sports fan you would often say i wonder who won the big game Let's watch the Kimmel monologue. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, in truth, Seth, I, what my most high-profile job at that time was 
on Fox Sports doing football picks. So that was kind of I was known as a sports guy. I was a sports guy on the radio at K Rock in L.A. And that's so sports were we tried to make them a big part of our show because we felt that they weren't a big part of the other shows. You'd have an occasional Super Bowl winner or whatever. We had a lot of very bad ideas. That was one of them. We had guest announcers for like the first year, which was basically like either my aunt Chippy or some lady at craft service had made Swedish meatballs. Everyone loved that night. And we'd let her announce the show. And it just, it was just the worst possible way to start a show with somebody that never announced. I mean, it just was stupid. I, I like, like in a nod for like Letterman, like just, you wanted to be like, get a cast of like people off the street or just is like to be irreverent or. I just, I didn't know any better. And I knew the one thing that I could do was bullshit with regular people. And I thought that would be a good way to start a show. I didn't do a monologue really at, at the top of my show for the first several years. I didn't do a monologue. I'd come out, I'd kind of say hello and I'd go sit down at the desk. I did the same thing. I was like, I'm not going to do a monologue. Everybody does a monologue. And then later I went, I know why everyone does a monologue. Yeah. I want to do a monologue. <laughs> and this became my favorite thing in the world. I look back. Which is, I wanted, I, because I came straight from update. I had three weeks off between my last update and my first late night. Ooh. And I had this great, this idea of, I've got to show everybody I'm not just the update guy. And then I just suffered through 18 months of being bad at doing monologues and not knowing how to move my hands. And the bummer, another thing that I think will resonate with Fallon more than anyone, I don't know if Lauren ever said this to you, but Lauren said, you know, it'll take you 18 months to figure out what your show is. And I was so, you know, in a a way I'm ashamed of now, I thought, this is not going to take me 18 months. It's going to take me six months at most. And then it was, I think, to the day, 18 months that I went into Shoemaker's office and said, I think we should just start at the desk like update. <laughs> when I did the math, I was like, ah, son of a bitch. He was right again. Right again. Oh. Yeah. I, I also, I, especially because I'm, you know, I follow you, Jimmy. I also thought, you know, they've just seen you do a monologue on your feet. And I just wanted to tell my first joke as fast as I could after your show ended. Were you guys bummed that when we all wound up shortening our theme songs? Because I really, one of the things I, oh, of memories I have is sitting at my desk in the middle of the night and hearing the str- opening strains of Late Night with David Letterman. And it's yeah. like knowing, okay, here it comes. And, and of course, they started doing research and then there was competition. And it's like, you have to get to the first jokes as quickly as possible you got to shorten those things just like they've done the oh same thing with sitcoms really i have a, i have a i have an unaired three minute opening credits that is just right if, if i ever do a last show and obviously i will someday but if i have any say in what happens on that last show this is what we're going to show because we had this fantastic uh fernando uh fernando live shits he is a uh argentinian director He's the best. And he's, you know him? No. Oh, he's fantastic. He really is fantastic. He did this whole. Um, um, I had an affair with him, right? Is that that Fernando? Exactly. It's <laughs> if for those of you who have watched all the episodes of <laughs> Strike Force Five, you'll know that my mother has a penchant for yes. autocrats. Autocrats before they were autocrats. Just to be fair to her, before exactly yeah, when it was still fun. You know, you once they're the- autocrats, like this isn't fun anymore. But what can you do? What they have in common is that she was the she, she was turning them into autocrats in a way that, that she broke up with them and they went nuts. You know uh, what? You know what? Uh, uh, like what's called? Is it called? It's not. Uh, it's called like um, tilt shift of photography, where it makes everything look really small. Oh yeah. We, we, we have like Manhattan, all the boroughs from helicopter done with tilt shift. It's so beautiful. It looks like like a toy world, oh, and the network's sure. like, "That's terrible. Lose it." I remember our graphics when we were coming up with our title sequence. There was a really beautiful long one, and I definitely liked it more. And then Liz Stanton, our producer, said, you're going to need to make this as short as possible because we're going to be stuck for time every week, and you're going to get angrier and angrier at the fact this opening segment is what is losing you time. Yes. As a matter of fact, now we're the whole thing's 35 seconds or something, if. Yeah. And I just got a note um, during the strike, which doesn't seem fair, note going, can we get that down? Can we get that can we get down to 25? Wow. 
You know, oh. we could do, guys, we absolutely could say, make an agreement that we're going to use the whole theme song, and that's that, and we're all going to do it. I, I do, I do actually, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is the Yours best. Yours is really short, too. This is our Jimmy's, Jimmy's theme song is by Menon. Whatever response to the week is. Us without our staff. Uh, I, I do the long one, don't I? Do I? <laughs> Jimmy, yeah, yeah, yours is the whole of Bohemian Rhapsody, right? start to finish, Jimmy, right? That's the whole thing, right? Your uh, Tonight Show, wasn't it uh, Spike Lee directed? Spike Lee directed our opening, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I, I, I mean, I think we've aired a couple episodes because some researcher said don't do the uh, theme song or something. I think we had a different showrunner. We've had, you know, Different showrunners come in, they have ideas on how to make the show better and the ratings go up and all this ridiculousness. And what, somebody said, don't do it, oh, uh, the thing, or cut it down. And it was such a bummer. It was terrible. And it bummed me out because the, the Roots love to play and the audience likes to hear the band. And I, it bummed me out. And I go, hey, how much ratings are we getting here? Like, is this, I don't think this is worth it. What Does your theme song have a name, Jimmy Fallon? Yeah, I don't know. No, it doesn't. I don't think. It, might, it probably does. What? Was it like being directed by Spike Lee, Jimmy? Uh, he's just, he was awesome. He's just so cool and very iconic in New York. And just kind of, he just had the shots all perfectly. Uh, Did you regret how much running you had to do? <laughs> no, I don't think I run in this one as much. Late night was running. Oh, late night was the run. Yeah. yeah. And that and was that live was... every night, wasn't it? Did you, re you actually ran every night. Yeah. I When I started the show, it was 300 pounds. I remember... Uh, booking late night when we my, the first week of late night I was so nervous to follow Conan O'Brien and uh, I, I didn't know how we we're going to do it and it was, it's hard to book your show when no one knows if the show's a hit or not or if you're good or not or anything so we couldn't I, I didn't know how we we're going to book it so Tina Fey said that she'd do any she'd do the first show or she'd do anything and Timberlake said I'll do any show uh, and 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 so I had those kind of in my, in my back pocket. So they would do one of the shows in the week. I figured maybe later on I'll use those. And I go, well, you know what I'll just do? I want like an A-list celebrity, somebody to come on and, and just show like, hey, that we're at 1230 at night. We're still getting like famous people and someone New York-y. So uh, I asked Robert De Niro uh, to be my first guest. And he, he said yes. He didn't have anything to promote. It was just nice and did it. But as we talked about in the first uh, uh Strike Force Five. He uh, he doesn't really talk much, uh, De Niro. In in famously, life, famously not a uh, chatty Kathy on the it's couch. A tough tough interview for my first ever interview, and I remember everything was a one word answer. It's nothing against him. This is who he is, and he's nice enough to do this show. And yeah. he was actually good. But I go, yeah, exactly. I go. Yeah. So you you're from New York, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and Little Italy. Yeah, close. Did no one tell you you were starting with the highest degree of difficulty in terms of a guest? Yeah, did no one. Say I got I got two words for you, Jimmy, and I wrote this. I wrote you a note about this after your launch, and those two words are space train. Space train. I remember more. Space. I said more space train because I love the space train sketch so much because he's also uncomfortable in the space train sketch. We yeah we asked him to be in a sketch called Space Train. Tell them we, what Space Train was, Jimmy. Well, first of all, I just want to say so you're interviewing one of the most reticent talk show guests, and the whole time you also know in the back of your head that the next thing you're doing with them is Space Train. <laughs> I, I kind of remember what Space Train was. I I think it was in the middle of the interview. Didn't you say like we worked on a project together? Wasn't it one of those things like, and then you you, ran, you threw to a clip of this project you had done together. And it was a train that went to space or something? It's a train that goes to space. Yeah. And you guys are wearing... There's only so much track, so it doesn't go very far to space. And there's like a murder on the space train, but it all takes place on the space silver train. Suits? Like oh, sort of like... And he had a little conductor's hat, like uh, a silver yes, conductor's a silver hat on. Oh, it was terrible. <laughs> I love that Stephen remembers Jimmy's show better than Jimmy does. Oh, I totally forget space train. Oh, my gosh. I feel... Thank you, Robert De Niro, for even... Thinking of doing Space Train. Was Van uh, Morrison your show too, Jimmy? Well, it was supposed to be U2. We booked U2 and we were so excited. It was Robert De Niro and U2. And then Bono uh, called me and apologized because Letterman off offered U2 three nights in a row and took them uh, booking, took them from us. And because and you said, that's it. U2's never on my show, right? You just went, no. One <laughs> strike, you're out. Yeah. 
I go I like though you just got next in line for Irish late night music. Van Morrison <laughs> happened to be in town. Sure. And I go, it wasn't Van Morrison, it would have been the Pogues. That was how it goes. It's the way it works, man. I'm Irish, man. So I go, he's doing Astro Weeks on uh, and so he did uh yeah. So Van Morrison came. So I don't think he's done TV in like 20 years or something. So it was Robert De Niro, Justin Timberlake, and Van Morrison. And he did uh, something off Astro Weeks. Question for everybody. When does it dawn on you? The craziest thing is first episodes because that moment where it dawns on you that you have to do one. Yeah. Like you just have to immediately and, start thinking about the next one. Yeah. yeah. I started yeah, on they, they, after the Super Bowl. So I had to do six shows that week. And you know, on the occasions that people start a talk show and they ask me about it, I always say it's really not the first night and it's not even the first week because a lot of thought goes into it. It's the Tuesday following the first week where all the excitement kind of dies down and you, re- you realize like, oh, this is what this is. This is not going to be a great life. I mean, this is going to be pretty hard. <laughs> And I'm never going to stop thinking about this. Like how never. the first day in jail is fun because you meet all the new people. Yeah, and right. Just, you punch like, the big guy. Yeah. <laughs> you, you punch the, punch the big guy and that was fun. And it was like, oh. your dominance over they the... Call, exactly. They call it, it Jim belushi it. Yeah, exactly. Even I didn't, your first show? I didn't want a first show. Because I kept on going like, why is this all this fucking pressure on a first show? I've just done nine and a half years of show. Right for the for the Colbert Report, which is a totally different beast, and maybe doesn't even fit in this conversation. But and then I'm going to go over to the Late Show, and obviously there's all the pressure taking over for Dave and and whatnot, and a totally different world. Like when I got to Late Night, uh, or you know, to to the Late Show over at CBS, I immediately went, "Oh shit!" I already had respect for the people who did this job. It is exponentially larger now that I'm dealing with a network and I'm doing an hour, and there's all this like in intense focus on like how happy the the advertisers are and and what the ad rate is and what your ratings are and all that kind of stuff that was all for me to discover the joy of that was waiting for me but the first thing i wanted was just to do a show just let's just do a fucking show and so opus moreski who at the time was my head writer at the old show said why don't we just go someplace and do a show on public access cable and i said oh i really like that idea so we found a town in Michigan called Monroe, Michigan, which is about an hour and a half south from uh, from Detroit and about 45 minutes north of the Indiana border. And we just took over a, a public access show called Only in Monroe that was hosted by two women, one whose name I can't remember, and the other one's name was um, Kehlani Rafko Wilson, which is only one person's name. And we... We did a show that was about Monroe, Michigan. And then my guest was a Michigander. We had uh, Marshall Mathers on. But I I was still kind of in character because I hadn't figured out how to fucking be myself. So I wasn't my old character. I was just some other guy. And I did not know who Eminem was. And I interviewed him. It's worth watching, I think. It's a 25-minute interview, and I have no the fuck who he is. And he do you has think no... this was going to be a bit that you would do all the time, not knowing who the guest was? I thought maybe that we'd find a way for me to be someone interviewing someone and have no knowledge of, of who they are. It's worth um, it's worth going to see. We should throw a link up. And the thing is, is that the uh, uh, Eminem was, was cool about it. He knew who I was, but he had no idea what was about to happen. And he was truly confused about how this would be a form of entertainment. But my favorite thing about it was, so we do this thing we, I do like a, a desk piece where I settle some dispute that was happening on a Yelp review of a local burger joint. Uh, <laughs> I talk about what's going on in town. I interview Eminem. They put it together. It's an hour long, and it goes on at 11 o'clock at night. We wanted a late night show, so it was 11 o'clock at night on Sunday nights in Monroe, Michigan, only in the greater Monroe area. And we asked them, you know, like, how many people watch your show? I want to know, like, because we wanted it to be viral. We didn't tell anybody. We wanted it to just happen. See what happens if people just go, holy shit, that's Stephen Colbert and Eminem. This is when we're rolling the show in. And they said, uh, 12. <laughs> and I said, so 12,000 people. And they said, no, 12. Their <laughs> not, ratings, not their viral. average ratings were 12 people. And 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 we're we're on we're on Twitter, like seeing who's noticing, who's noticing, because we're in the control room in Monroe, Michigan, rolling it out live, and no one it does not show up on Twitter at all. 
And I looked around the room and I counted the number of people in the control room and there were 12 of us. <laughs> and I went, this is it. <laughs> These are the 12 people watching the show tonight. And um, oh, by four o'clock the next day, there were like 2 million people watching it or something like that. Someone found out from somebody that this had happened, but that was my first show. I mean, it doesn't really count as first show. No, no, John Oliver, first show, do you remember? Of, of, uh, of the last, last week tonight? Yeah. Because I'd, I'd stood in for John Stewart doesn't previously count. for a few months and hadn't interviewed nobody ever before. So that was my crash. Course. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that was pretty bad. In fact, I remember one time, Stephen, that we, it was relatively early on that, uh, Aaron Sorkin was the guest and for there you? was a power cut in the building before he came on. And it was at a time where people were still, you could feel in the building, people were still nervous about, can this guy actually do this? Can he get us through the summer? And we, we taped it just on a video camera. And then we had to come to your office to feed it to Comedy Central from there. And they needed an Allen key to get into your office. <laughs> Luckily, John <laughs> had one. And it wasn't Allen key. Thank you for well, correcting that. Yeah, I, I have a quick feeding story, and I don't, I don't mean to hog the tape here, but when my first show, which was chaotic, to to say the least, because we we were not we had not gelled as a as a producing organization, let alone an aesthetic uh, group yet. Um, I used to sit in on all edits. I mean, I did it at the old show. I would I would always be there. There wasn't much to edit. It was a short show, and it was very very scripted. So, um, but for this, I'm in the I'm in the editing room with uh, Jason Baker, the Bake Shop. He's a he's brilliant editor, and he can't export the first act. Everybody else is fine. He can't export the first act uh, out of his Avid. It crashes every time he tries to export the first act. And the clock is ticking and the clock is ticking and everybody's over at some party and all my brothers and sisters and aunts and everybody is there to celebrate me starting the show. I'm not there. I'm in the editing room with him waiting for him to export this to the master control over at the CBS broadcast building where they have to do their shit to it. Then then it has to be sent like to the satellite. And it's 1115 and wow. we still haven't broadcast it, haven't gotten out of the room. And I said, wow, somebody really should boy, somebody should really let the uh, network know what's going on. And I realized, because I didn't have a showrunner when my show started. It was just me. And I said, oh, shit, I'm the executive in charge of production. And I said, someone get me Les Moonves's number. I have to tell him there's no show. And everybody in the room, everybody in the room was going, it's going to be fine. I'm like, what are you talking about? It is 1123, and we can't get that to get out of the thing. There's not even enough time to, to finish the act now. And they and the editor turned around and goes, I'm going to push that button. It's going to feed directly to the satellite and everyone's going to enjoy it. And I said, you don't know that. And he goes, it's going to happen. And everybody on the technical side said, what are you worried about, man? It's going to be fine. We have to feed it out of the Avid just to the satellite directly with no guarantee that the show is going to work. And I've got a photo of all of us in an accountant's office watching the show live on CBS because we didn't have time to do anything other than to go down the hallway to see whether it worked. And we literally kicked down the door to get in because it was locked and it was the nearest door and we knew there was a TV in there. So we fucking kicked open the lock, went in there with a big old bottle of Old Forester bourbon, popped it open and passed well, it around the room and just- mean You mean when you say Old Forester A big old, <laughs> big mean... old bottle of Casamigos. Uh, right. Castellino. <laughs> and we sat there and and literally looked at our watches and go, this is where it is. This is this is where the this is where it crashes. And it didn't crash. And there's a photograph of my editor throwing like his a hand space up. train taking off. Exactly. My editor threw his hand up in the air and he goes, I push the button here, it comes out there. And that's my first show. Too much. Oh, boy. I it. thought like this is going to be the shortest career in the history of late night. I'll never even get on the air because how do you fucking come back from that? You tell me, gentlemen. Let us speculate what would have happened if my show had not appeared at eleven thirty-five and I had not yet called Mr. Moonves to tell him no TV show. I think Les Moonves was going to be fine with it. Hey, he seemed great. Hey, while we speculate, can we, can we listen to a quick message from our good friend at Mint Mobile? Ryan Reynolds. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, owner of Mint Mobile. You know, a lot of people come up to me and say, Ryan, can you please have your bodyguard let me out of this arm bar? But before I issue the release command, I usually recommend my fans switch to Mint Mobile because I love my fans. And there's literally never been a better time to switch, arm bar or not. While big wireless is busy inflating their prices, Mint Mobile is actually deflating ours. We've lowered the price of our unlimited plan to just $15 a month for a limited time. That's crazy. So protect yourself from big wireless by switching to Mint Mobile for just $15 a month. With the money you save, maybe you could get your own bodyguard or MMA lessons. To be honest, I'm not sure anything beats an arm bar, and I'm, I'm really more of a football fan anyway. Visit mintmobile.com for premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. $45 up front required plus taxes and fees. Three-month promo rate renews at full price. Limited time for new customers only. Data speeds reduced after 40 gigabytes per month for unlimited video streams at 480p. Visit mintmobile.com. I love Ryan. Knew he was handsome, but I will say this is the day that it dawned on me that he has a really beautiful voice as well. He has the voice that you want to use when you're telling the small boy that Whiskers is on a farm now. We should mention, right, Seth, that... Yes, Mint Mobile's coming through. They are going to... <laughs> What was the number? Do you remember the number? A hundred and fifty free uh, memberships. What do you call it? Counts to our uh, to our crew and our staffs and all the people. Wait, so Mint Mobile is giving also giving our staff and, and crew free Mint Mobile. They yeah. are not, and also money. I think it makes it kind of sound like like they're like instead of money, we're going to yeah. give you this, but um, money, money as well. They're giving money to us for us to distribute to our staff. Right, which is, you know, it's a leap of faith, honestly. And I, think, and I think, so what I think Ryan did was build in a safety they would also get. <laughs> they would get something from him. Does Ryan Reynolds have the highest hit rate of launching successful businesses? Has he had a flop yet? He even no. turned Wrexham around, not just the team, the city. Yeah. yeah. He's unbelievable. He's got Aviation Gin, he's got Mint Mobile, he's got Wrexham. Um, I think he owns Allegiant Airlines. Yeah, he owns a lot of shit. He's he a, stopped by my uh, office once to give me a bottle of aviation gin, also distributed by our friends at Diageo. You know, um, oh, yeah, that's right, Diageo. Let's talk about our friends at Diageo. Our friends at Diageo, specifically Casamigos, which is um, supporting this podcast. I like to say it in a way that makes it seem like this is an NPR-type situation. Last week tonight, you get on last week tonight. Yeah. And it's, it, it, it's, it's not live. So it is very much not live. Yeah, the lawyers would not allow us to do it live. That so was you never. Had it in, you had it in the can. You go. This is exactly what I think we're going to release. Well, we probably did too many ideas in our first show. We kind of threw everything. It's if it maybe you had a guest, like, right? One of these things. We had a guest. Had to bump for. T well, I pre-taped a guest. It was General Alexander because I'd spoken to Edward Snowden. Um, I talked about Edward Snowden while I was standing in for John. So I, I did the other side of that piece and interviewed General Alexander, but. Uh, yeah, I think the big thing that we learned was that we, at that point, were doing uh, were doing one show a week. We were just like coming up with what we were going to talk about that week, the first day in. Day two, we would write it. Day three, we would get research coming in, washing away everything that we'd just done, meaning that day four, we had a blank page and we had to do a show the next day. And that clearly was not going to be sustainable in any way. So that was the problem. That was the big thing that we learned was that we were going to need to completely changed the way that we struck how long process. did it take you while you were actually making the show to adjust to the new reality that you were we got to the end of the first year and that's when we restuffed everything changed everything around and it became better for people's physical and mental health from that point and by on. the end of that first year your bones were as hollow as a sparrows right you could have just right. played them like a flute that's right you could tap me you could basically play play claire de lune if you hit me on different parts of the shin and you didn't, you wouldn't have said you started with uh, what doctors call strong bones. <laughs> I think that's strong, strong bones. It's harsh, but I think it's fair. Yeah. <laughs> hey, before you started the show, they're like, don't do anything to hollow these babies out. Yeah. We, we, did, we knew what our first show was going to be. It was going to be about the Indian election because that's the thing that was most interesting. And we knew what our second show was going to be because it was going to be about the death penalty. And I do remember thinking, if this first show doesn't work, we're not getting people back with the death penalty. That is for sure. Seth, what was your first show? Who was on your first show? It was uh, much like uh, uh, Jimmy calling out a favor, Amy Poehler was always the plan was always to be uh, my first guest and then our second guest who agreed to be a second guest when we said do you mind following 
Amy Poehler was a vice president. Joe Biden said, I will happily go second. He had done an episode of Parks and Recreation. He's the kind of guy who very much responds um, to the brassy charm of an Amy Poehler. And so he was our second guest and uh, he was the best. And the two of them, she stayed out. And so we have a great, I have, you know, one of my favorite first night photos is the, the three of us. And I also remember that, again, simpler time. We were making so many jokes about uh, Sochi because we launched during the Sochi Olympics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so many jokes about Bob Costas's pink eye. <laughs> oh, Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, that was pretty good. Double, Double pink, pink eye. eye. Yeah. Piece, which was, here's how you see winter sports when you have double pink eye. And it would be, here's the luge. And we just, we filmed it all in the office. And it was a hot dog going down a Hot Wheels track. <laughs> and uh, it made me laugh so hard. And I remember <laughs> thinking, this is it. I mean, we've already figured it out. All anybody in America is going to be talking about is this pink eye sketch. <laughs> and you just realize <laughs> that's the thing. Because a little bit of SNL, if a sketch hits, people talk about it. But yeah. in late night, it's just, and that's when I realized, oh, it's a churn. Like, because I think we had, I think we had a, uh, you know, pink eye uh, sketch in the can, you know, cause we, you know, you go into your first week and you've got three things you pre-filmed and you kind of in your back of your head think you're always going to have three things pre-filmed and then you, oh. <laughs> you show one, you got two. And so that wow. was what really broke my heart is first of all, nobody really cared about our pink eye sketch. And then also no, space train, they don't care. Yeah. Uh, it's it's amazing the things you go like this is the one this is the one that's going to yeah. just snap out and yeah, just go flying off by itself and we're just going to be able to just literally tether our entire show to this one sketch or one bit and it'll pull us for the next month on just goodwill from America and no one even your family doesn't say hey that was funny no one says anything to you about it no Robert one cares Morton, Robert Morton who was uh, Letterman's exec for many years Morty Morty I worked for him on another on another show uh out in uh, la and uh we got to know each other a little bit and he called me up the day before the show started and he goes hey steven hey have a good time you know have a good time just keep in mind it's never as bad as you think and it's never as good as you think anyway have a great time when guests bomb i sometimes say that to him never say what they do well it's like it's never as bad as you think when you see it on television <laughs> i always say it's, it's gonna up. play great in the box it's gonna <laughs> play great in the box don't you feel like that's the goal though because it isn't. It isn't in a good way. It's not about wild swings. It's just slowly bringing up what counts as an average show. Just like slowly raising what your average show is, so that it's over- right. I just got. I just got a text from a member of Strike Force Five. Is that the best way to do it? I just. I just, <laughs> I just got a text from a member of Strike Force 5 and it's it's from Jimmy Fallon under the code name Steve Allen it says i have to go <laughs> I, I, and i assume everyone got this at the same yeah, time i am the right only here. one who wants I, to be honest with our audience yep. but i didn't know is this we're talking about show business and all this stuff but it's getting, it's going a little long so there's a limit there's a limit to how much you want to help the staff is what you're saying my face is so red i have no where i am there's no air conditioning or anything it is so hot where i am can you see my face does it look like i'm being strict i was a guest on jimmy's first show i was a guest on your first tonight show i'll say that it was an amazing group of people it was like you'd never get the job or something like that wasn't it the the bet yeah i said yeah Whoever I said, my buddy who uh, who bet me a hundred bucks that I would never be here. You owe me a hundred. That had never hosted Tonight Show. You owe me a hundred bucks. And then like a hundred people came out and gave me a hundred bucks. And I was the last one because I I guess it already been. An, I was already eleven thirty at my show, but it was been announced that I would be taking over for Dave. And I asked for mine to be in dimes. I gave you a hundred dollars in dimes. Dimes or pennies? I want to say you dumped. I don't know if I could do pennies, but that's a lot of pennies. I poured it. I poured it all over you, and then and then I said, "Welcome to 11:30, uh, bitch." I believe I said, which I'm not proud of. I'm not proud of. Well, I think it was super funny, but I remember you did pour all those dimes down uh, on me because I had to run up to the roof for to introduce you two, who finally they they agreed to do my show. The the you two. This is from you know this is now tonight show they were doing the show on the roof and i had to run to the roof to catch the daylight uh and as i was running there was dimes falling down my shirt and falling into my uh into my shoes and in my underwear and stuff it was there was dimes all over my body <laughs> you put you it was great that was a good bit all it was right, like so we are we are gonna wrap it up because uh, Bill, jimmy does look like a he's Yankee. got dimes to drop and uh that was our that was the second episode of um our podcast 
which has the name. <laughs> he's he's got to say the name. It's been sabotaged from the beginning. Yeah. Um, thank you very much uh, to our sponsors, Casa Amigos, Mint Mobile, everybody else. Thanks to our, uh, our, our crews, our writers, our staffs. We miss you very much. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. This yeah. has been a lot of fun. We'll, and it's not over. We'll do another one, right? No, Jimmy, I'm, uh, Jimmy has he, just texted all of us. He said, um, "Thank you. That was fun." <laughs> what I don't, I don't know the protocol. Is should I say anything on say this? Podcast? Say it for the podcast. Where are you going, yeah. Jimmy? Just tell us. Where are Come you? On. Anywhere with a breeze, a, a cool <laughs> breeze. Something. Uh, I'm bringing a bottle of Casamigos and anything. And your uh, cell phone. I look. I got things to do. This is. I can't talk. <laughs> for hours 45 to an hour is that's all that's all people want you don't they don't even want any more of this i think that we might want to consider renaming this as asphyxiating jimmy fallon <laughs> that is what's happening right in front of all of our eyes i hope you don't get down to strike force four really still gets an explosion that doesn't feel like it should it does be an explosion followed by taps <laughs> I'm looking forward to uh, the, the next episode because this is this is fun talking. I think next up is uh, I think I'm hosting the next one, and then the one You're after that is is, uh, is Oliver, and then yep. uh, Matt and Cleanup is uh, James Theodore Fallon. <laughs> <laughs>